This is Audible. Lincoln. Lincoln Cathedral originally owed everything to William the Conqueror. After invading England in 1066, the first Norman king undertook a large scale rearrangement of the country. He built a lot of castles, including the White Tower on the north bank of the River Thames, which became the Tower of London. But he also made significant rearrangements to the fabric and structure of the church in England. Bishops were integral figures to the new Norman ruling system that William imposed from the top down, and he needed to be sure they were in the right places. Several bishops were therefore ordered to move their headquarters, or seats, from the countryside into towns and cities. The mark of William's changes can still be felt all over England today. It is why there is a cathedral at Salisbury and not Old Sarum, at Norwich instead of Thetford, and at Chichester instead of Selsey, and why we have a bishop of Bath and Wells rather than one or the other. In most cases, William's rearrangement of his English bishops and their seats did not involve long-distance removal, but in one case it did. In 1072, Pope Alexander III granted William permission to move the Bishop of Dorchester-on-Thames in Oxfordshire 150 miles northeast to the most distant extreme of his sprawling diocese in Lincoln. This was a drastic move, but one that made sense. Whereas Dorchester was a pleasant Thames-side town on the edge of the Chiltern Hills, Lincoln was of far greater strategic and political importance. It had been founded by the Romans as Lindum Colonia, occupied for two centuries by the Vikings, and sat at a useful strategic position on the road between London and York, as well as several other river courses and Roman-era thoroughfares. It was close to the east coast, and boasted a very defensible, enormously steep hill, known today with typical East Midlands unfussiness as Steep Hill. And it was also in wild terrain, in need of taming. Norman authority in the region had been strongly resisted in the aftermath of the conquest by a famous Saxon nobleman known in later outlaw tales as Hereward the Wake. On Steep Hill, William built a castle. Soon after, his bishop Remigius, a Benedictine monk from Fecomp Abbey in Normandy, commissioned a cathedral directly next door. It was largely built in locally quarried limestone, at a time when many other Norman buildings were constructed in stone dug at Caen in Normandy, and imported to England on specially equipped ships. It was completed in 1092, when Remigius died, and then embellished by one of his successors, who installed beautifully carved arches over the doors, inspired by Abbot Suger's works at Saint-Denis. But this cathedral did not stand untroubled for long. It was burned in a fire of 1124, damaged during the Battle of Lincoln in 1141, when it was used as a makeshift fort, and shaken to its foundations by one of the worst earthquakes in Britain's recorded history in 1185. This was bad luck. Yet in architectural terms, it was good timing. In 1186, a new Bishop of Lincoln was elected a French Carthusian monk known in his lifetime as Hugh of Avalon, but in death as St. Hugh of Lincoln. Hugh had come to England with a direct interest in building, having been tasked by his order with constructing a Carthusian charter house in Somerset. 
His appointment as a bishop meant he could now set his sights much higher, literally. On the top of Steep Hill, Bishop Hugh initiated works to completely transform the cathedral, which, during the following six decades, would rise to a height unseen on earth since the days of the pharaohs. The name of the mason or masons Hugh hired to oversee his new cathedral is lost, but his team plainly included at least one architect-engineer of the grandest vision, who was familiar with the latest and finest Gothic trends. These included the fine works recently completed on the choir of Canterbury Cathedral, which had been rebuilt under the direction of the great master William of Song, following a devastating fire in 1174. But influences and perhaps craftsmen arrived in Lincoln from further afield too, including Trondheim, across the North Sea in Norway, where a Gothic cathedral had been built in the mid-12th century. Now it was not just limestone that was dragged painstakingly up steep hill to the building site, probably by teams of oxen hauling carts, but also marble from Peterborough, further away in the diocese, which added a luxurious, sensuous feel to the pillars in an interior that would eventually reach nearly 150 metres in length. The west front of the original cathedral, through which most visitors would approach, was already intricately decorated with a carved frieze in the Romanesque tradition, depicting events from the Old and New Testaments, ranging from Satan's expulsion from heaven to Christ's harrowing of hell. This had survived the ravages of fire, war and earthquake, and now set the tone for a building that would be filled with statues, carvings and reminders to all who entered of both the delights of salvation and the hideous torments of damnation. A project on the scale of Lincoln's new Gothic cathedral was inevitably more than a lifetime's work, and when Bishop Hugh died in 1200, Lincoln's centre was still a huge construction site, which would have teemed with masons and labourers, carpenters and blacksmiths, the shell of the new cathedral covered with wooden scaffolding and pulley-operated cranes. But by dying, Hugh did his cathedral a great service. According to a hagiographical account of his life, the bishop had often been seen hauling stone blocks and lime mortar around the site, assisted by a crippled hod carrier who was miraculously cured by his willingness to graft in the name of the Lord. The bishop's normal companion was a tame hooper swan, which he befriended on the day of his consecration and kept as a pet. In death, Hugh was far more than a mere willing pair of hands. In the half-century after his demise, his reputation for sanctity, probity and holiness blossomed, until he became the object of a miracle cult. According to Adam of Ainsham, who wrote Hugh's biography in the first decades of the 13th century, his sanctity was obvious from the moment a surgeon cut open his fresh corpse to remove the intestines before burial. Those who attended this grisly ritual noted with surprise that his bowels were empty of water or stool, as clean and immaculate as if someone had already carefully washed and wiped them. The internal organs shone like glass. And this was only the beginning. During his funeral procession, the candles on his beer would not be blown out, even by strong winds. A mourner with a broken arm was healed by a miraculous dream while a cut purse who robbed a woman who had come to pay her respects at Hugh's coffin 
was struck blind, so that he staggered about aimlessly like a drunkard until he was captured. These, and wonders like them, were enough to earn Hugh sainthood in 1220. So Lincoln now became a tourist trap, with thousands of visitors arriving each year to venerate Hugh's shrine, along with a second one that was installed to hold his head. This new footfall necessitated further extension work, but it also paid for it. Thus, at the far east end of the cathedral, the angel choir was added to house Hugh's remains. It was so called for the delightful angel sculptures that decorated it, taking their design cues from Westminster Abbey, which at this time was also undergoing massive refurbishments under the attentive eye of King Henry III. By the time the Angel Choir was complete in 1280, Lincoln was unquestionably in the first rank of English cathedrals, and this was a very glamorous club in which to sit. In England, Westminster had undergone its elaborate royal renovations, re-centred on the shrine of Edward the Confessor. Canterbury was an imposing seat for the English primate and contained the world-famous shrine to Thomas Becket. York Minster, seat of the Northern Archbishop, was undergoing magnificent works of its own. And glorious Gothic building programmes were either underway or complete in every corner of the land. Exeter, Salisbury, Winchester, Gloucester and Wells in the south and west, Ely and Norwich in the east, Durham and Carlisle in the north, Hereford and Worcester in the Welsh borders. Meanwhile in Wales there had been major works at St David's, Llandaff and St Asaph. Gothic sensibilities had also touched the Kingdom of Scotland, where they were notably put into effect at Dunblane and Elgin cathedrals and at Melrose Abbey. Out of these various works, a distinct take on Gothic architecture was developing. What are today called the decorated and perpendicular styles were hallmarks of English cathedral building during the later Middle Ages. But it was no accident that there was such creativity and ambition in the British Isles. As we have seen, by the late 13th century, England in particular was an enormously wealthy kingdom. Its economy was supercharged by the booming wool industry, its churchmen possessed huge tracts of profitable land, its kings commanded a relatively unified state and took a keen interest in monumental building of all sorts, not only in the form of castles. Most of England's Plantagenet monarchs were keenly attuned to the power that they could project through employing world-class master builders, which is why many English cathedrals have a royal tomb somewhere within. There was certainly keen royal interest in Lincoln. Part of Bishop Hugh's vision for his remodelled cathedral had been a large tower at the centre of the building, topped with a spire. Unfortunately, during the first decades of the tower's construction, Problems arose with its structure, and in 1237 it fell, brought down by its own weight. Repairs were first made in the 1250s, under orders from King Henry III, whose interest in architecture was unsurpassed by that of any other king of his dynasty, save perhaps Henry VI, who in the 15th century founded the majestic Gothic chapels at Eton College and King's College, Cambridge. Then, in the early 14th century, Lincoln's Tower was enlarged and extended to an even greater height. When it was complete in 1311, its spire, made of wood and finished in lead, was 160 metres tall. 
This was some 11 metres higher than the Great Pyramid of Giza at Cheops in Egypt, which had for almost 4,000 years been the tallest man-made structure on Earth. Lincoln Cathedral would retain this status until a gale blew the spire down in 1548. By the time Lincoln had become a wonder of the world, it had also officially become the repository for royal as well as saintly relics. In the early winter of 1290, Edward I's beloved queen, Eleanor of Castile, died in the village of Harby in Nottinghamshire, just 30 miles away from Lincoln. Eleanor, as we have seen, had been an impeccably dutiful queen, her service to the crown extending to giving birth on the building site of Carnarvon Castle. Edward was distraught by her death and determined to mark with great honour her progress back to London, where she was to be buried. On the first night of this journey, her body was taken to a priory just outside Lincoln's city walls and her entrails were removed to slow decomposition. On the 3rd of December, they were buried in the cathedral and were later given a fine tomb near St Hugh's Shrine. Outside in the town was erected the first of a series of twelve Eleanor crosses, ornately carved stone pillars prominently located in town squares to mark the fact that the Queen's remains had rested there. The inspiration for this elaborate and unusual commemoration of Eleanor's procession probably came from France where 20 years earlier, monuments known as Montjoie were set up along the funeral procession route of Louis IX, he who commissioned the Saint-Chapelle in Paris to house the crown of thorns. The Eleanor crosses were designed by a team of the best mason architects working in England at that moment, John of Battle, Michael of Canterbury and Alexander of Abingdon. Most are now destroyed or lost, but they were all once Gothic masterpieces in their own right, ordered by a king who understood, as all great medieval rulers did, that a legacy could not be built in blood alone, but had to be certified and made permanent in stone. Although Edward was, as we have seen, a castle builder first and a cathedral builder second, he nevertheless ensured his place in Lincoln Cathedral's extraordinary history. And Lincoln, in turn, earned its own place at the heart of the story of the medieval Gothic adventure. Walking through the ancient doorway in the West Front on a quiet afternoon in the 21st century, and strolling down the cathedral's vast length to the angel choir in the Far East, admiring the near-infinite wealth of decorations and sculptures, which stretch so high that many have seldom been glimpsed since the medieval masons who originally carved them descended from the scaffolding, some 750 years ago, is one of the most exhilarating experiences you can enjoy and a testament to the lasting power of this entire age of Western architecture. Yet before we leave the realm of the medieval builders, there is one last case to consider from a city that was, and is, only lightly touched by the French Gothic mania for endless sheets of glass and ceilings that touch the clouds. It is time to pay a visit to Florence which at the turn of the 14th century was to be the venue for a great cathedral of its own, suitable for a city so proud of its own wealth and glory, but hungry for something other than the arches and spires that soared everywhere north of the Alps. From Spires to Domes 
In the early 1290s, around the time that Edward of England was commissioning his last Welsh castles, the Italian artist and sculptor Arnolfo di Cambio was in Rome, working on a tomb. It was located in the old Basilica of St. Peter, and its occupant was to be Pope Boniface VIII, bet noir of the French king Philip IV, and recipient of the so-called Agnani Slap. At this time, Boniface was still alive, but it was traditional for any self-respecting magnate of church or state to oversee works on their own tomb, if nothing else, to be sure the job was done to their satisfaction. Arnolfo had previously created a fine tomb for a powerful French cardinal, Guillaume de Bray, located in a large church at nearby Orvieto. Before that, he had also served as a court sculptor to Charles of Anjou, brother of Louis IX and king of Naples and Sicily, died 1285, producing an uncannily lifelike statue of the king sitting on a throne wearing a Roman senator's toga. He therefore had a working knowledge of French styles and French attitudes, and a good claim to be the foremost sculptor at work in Italy. Certainly he was a man fit to build a pope's resting place. Yet Arnolfo had bigger ambitions than statues and tombs. Around 1293, he was invited to fulfil them. The citizens of Florence wanted a new cathedral. They asked Arnolfo to come and build it for them. Arnolfo had designed one cathedral already, in Orvieto, where he had planned a large Romanesque basilica, on which work had begun around 1290. In Florence, however, the opportunities were much greater. The city had a population of perhaps 45,000 people, which made it larger than London, ruled over by an oligarchic government generally dominated by wealthy merchant families. Like many other Italian cities, it had been plagued for most of the 13th century by violent civil strife, firstly between a pro-Hohenstaufen imperial faction known as the Ghibellines and a papal faction known as the Guelphs, and subsequently between parties known as the Blacks and Whites. These political tensions often gave rise to brawls, fights, murders, coups, counter-coups, petty revolutions, and even all-out war. Yet they did not diminish Florentines' overall sense of civic pride and ability to make money. The streets may not have been safe at night, but they were clean and well laid out, and business in them was booming, as ambitious merchants and bankers harvested huge profits from all across the world. Florence was already producing or attracting great artists, writers and architects, including the artist Cimabue and his protégé Giotto, the poet Dante Alighieri and the visionary painter Coppo di Marcavoldo. Florentines also had a particularly acute sense of the political power of buildings. One favourite activity in the aftermath of any bout of political upheaval was for the victorious party to tear down the houses and towers belonging to their disgraced and vanquished rivals. There was plenty for Arnolfo to do. According to his admiring biographer, the 16th century painter and architect Giorgio Vasari, Arnolfo built or rebuilt half the city of Florence in his time there, including the walls and the famous Palazzo Vecchio, the fortress-like city hall which overlooks the Piazza della Signori. It seems very likely that Vasari was exaggerating. Nevertheless, Arnolfo took on at least three major projects more or less simultaneously. 
The first was to rebuild the church at the Badia, one of the most prominent Benedictine abbeys in the city, and by tradition, the place where the city's most famous poet, Dante Alighieri, first set eyes on his poetic muse, Beatrice. The second was to overhaul the Franciscan church of Santa Croce. The third, and greatest, was to begin work on a replacement for a dilapidated thousand-year-old cathedral dedicated to the city's then patron, Saint Reparata. And here, Arnolfo was given license to let his imagination run riot. Had Arnolfo been working in Paris, London or Cologne, his designs for these buildings would surely have followed the French Gothic style. Yet in Italy, architecture was developing along different lines. Arches remained rounded in the Romanesque fashion rather than pointed. Elaborate systems of flying buttresses and dizzying spires were seldom seen. Walls were walls, thick and strong and structurally sound, rather than frameworks for vast plates of brightly coloured glass. And the gleaming white and yellow limestone, so popular north of the Alps, was only rarely preferred to sandstone and brick. Although height, size and ornateness of decoration had all become more important in Italian building projects during the 13th century, there was no pressure whatever on Arnolfo suddenly to bless Florence with its own take on the Abbey Church of Saint-Denis. Arnolfo was free to create buildings that would be characteristically Florentine, adopting elements of the Gothic movement, but not slavishly so. His works on the Badia and the Franciscan's church at Santa Croce were elegant, but comparatively spare and uncomplicated, although the former is now distinguished by its spired tower, and the latter lavishly decorated with a 19th-century neo-Gothic marble facade. Santa Croce became the burial place for some of Florence's most stellar residents, including Michelangelo, Galileo, Machiavelli, and Giacchino Rossini. His design for the city's new cathedral, however, was ambitious and potentially triumphant. The cathedral Arnolfo designed directly anticipated the world-renowned building that now occupies the Piazza del Duomo in central Florence, one of the most immediately recognisable places in the world, the centrepiece of Florence's iconic skyline and a magnet to modern tourists who queue for hours in the baking heat of Tuscan summers to set foot inside for a mere few minutes. To allow for it, workmen tore down a swathe of the city, including the old cathedral of Santa Reparata and another nearby church, and exhumed a graveyard. In the space they cleared, Arnolfo laid the foundations for an oblong nave, 66 metres in length and 21 metres wide, with bays on either side. This replicated, almost to the centimetre, his design for the church of Santa Croce and Arnolfo probably planned his cathedral to mimic Santa Croce's wooden, rather than stone-vaulted, roof. But where the two designs differed was at the eastern end, where Arnolfo envisaged the cathedral rising into a large dome, echoing that marvel of classical engineering which crowned the Pantheon in Rome. The dome would sit on an octagonal base, and around it, three half-octagonal arms would complete the design while helping to support the anticipated weight of such a complicated structure. It was to be slightly larger than the dome that crowned the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople. This was a majestic plan. The foundation stone was laid in 1296. 
As we have already seen, few medieval architects lived to see their cathedrals completed. Arnolfo was no exception. His designs and the start he made on the building work certainly pleased the Florentine authorities. Four years into the project, Arnolfo was granted freedom from taxation there for the rest of his life and lauded in official city documents as a more famous master and greater expert in the building of churches than any other who is known in neighbouring parts. He was a walking, talking credit to the city itself. But at some point between 1301 and 1310 he died, and work on his cathedral ground to a halt. A facade at the western end, replaced in the 16th century and now largely lost, featured sculptures by Arnolfo, depicting figures ranging from the Virgin Mary to Pope Boniface. Around half the nave had probably also been built. But without the cathedral's master, the impetus for completing his designs was lost. There were, to be fair, extenuating political circumstances. In 1311, an aggressive, if short-lived, new German king, Henry VII, marched into Italy to be crowned as Holy Roman Emperor. The Florentines rejected him and were forced to arm themselves to defend the city against imperial troops. Although Henry died of malaria during his campaign, Florence was subsequently attacked by the pro-imperial ruler of nearby Pisa and Lucca. Strengthening the city walls took precedence over finishing the cathedral. In 1333, Florence also needed a new bridge, after floods swept away the existing Ponte Vecchio. True, in the 1330s, the genius Giotto built a tall, freestanding, undeniably Gothic cathedral bell tower directly alongside Arnolfo's nave. But by mid-century, no more significant work had been done. The cathedral was not quite a white elephant, but it represented unfinished business. It took until the late 1360s for Florence's cathedral committee to agree to restart works, under a revised design drawn up by the most respected mason of the day, Neri di Fioravanti, who envisaged enlarging the dome even further than Arnolfo had planned, making it bigger than the Pantheon, and concluding in a small spire. This was a Gothic flourish, but the dome itself smacked of ancient Rome by way of Byzantium and even Arab Jerusalem. It was also, apparently, unbuildable. Neri created a huge scale model of the dome, which was placed in the cathedral nave. Every year the building committee members would swear to find a way to realise it. But for decades, no one could see how it was to be done. Not until 1418, some 122 years after the foundation stone on Arnolfo's original cathedral was laid, did anyone come up with an engineering solution to the conundrum of Florence's Duomo. That person was a mathematical genius called Filippo Brunelleschi, who won an open competition for the commission and was forced to invent entirely new building systems and lifting machines to winch some four million bricks into position during a construction process that took the better part of two decades. It was a gruelling end to a painfully drawn-out project. But when Brunelleschi finished the dome, the cathedral now known as Santa Maria del Fiore was instantly recognised as a marvel of the sort scarcely seen since the death of the classical world a millennium before. Today it is generally recognised as the founding architectural achievement of the Italian Renaissance and the ancestor 
of the domes that adorned many monumental buildings of the modern age, including St. Paul's Cathedral in London, as Anvalide in Paris, and the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. But for that reason, it belongs to a phase of the Middle Ages that had yet to dawn when Arnolfo di Cambio broke ground in 1296. That phase, the beginning of the end of the medieval world, began in 1347, when Santa Maria del Fiore was a half-built curiosity, born but ungrown and waiting for a genius to bring it to conclusion. The event that turned the world upside down was a pandemic. It hit Western Europe when ships arriving in Italy from the east disembarked not only spices and exotic luxury goods, but a disease worse than any since the age of Justinian. This was the Black Death, which killed around 40% of Europe's population and changed the world forever. The swathe it cut across the West and the reaction of the living to unfathomable death marks the start of the final part of our story. <laughs>